You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. This past summer, my wife and I and our two children, we went to Kansas City uh, for, not Kansas City, Little Rock. Uh, I've mixed those up every time. Uh, We went to Little Rock for a national convention of our denomination, our association of churches. And I was incredibly tired at the end of that meeting because when I'm there, I serve in the, in the like, backstage area. I help with uh, doing videos and capturing uh, songs and sermon clips and getting them posted. And so while the service is going on, I'm in a back room like editing video and publishing it and posting it. And then in addition to that, I have meetings that I'm doing in the morning. So at the end of this conference, it had been a great conference and it just things had gone really well, but I was just tired. It had been really, really busy the whole time that we were there. And so I was ready to get home, you know, be at home, relax. And so I was put, I put on clothes. I've been wearing clothes that were like, well, kind of dressy all week for the conference. And so I put on clothes like, these are the clothes you wear when you want to be comfortable for a long drive. And we went to this little breakfast spot. We were going to meet up with my sister and brother-in-law. He's also a pastor and they were at the meeting. And so we're going to have breakfast at this little spot before we hit the road. And so, and I just like threw on a ball cap, a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and um, got there with the kids, we're going to have some breakfast, and we're hitting the road, heading home. And we get there to the restaurant, and when we get into the restaurant, we discover that they are shooting a commercial that day at the restaurant. And I'm, I'm not what you would consider like a self-conscious person. I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's constantly like, hey, how do I look, or that kind of thing. There have been times that I've gotten up here in front of you and uh, not realized like my buttons are all mismatched or my hair is all askew, you know, because I haven't looked at the mirror since, you know, I left the house or, or whatever. And uh, so I'm not typically a self-conscious person, but when we went in there and I realized there was going to be a camera crew in the restaurant while we were eating, I suddenly felt very self-conscious. Like, man, if I'd know they were shooting a commercial, I would not have worn these clothes, you know? And suddenly I was like, is this the normal way to sit? Is, is this how I eat? Is this, like, what do I do with my hands? Just everything felt awkward, you know? And finally, we, we, you know, we leave, and somebody shared that commercial when it was finally posted, and I think there's like 0.3 seconds where you can see Nicole and I just like in the background. Our kids actually made a little bit of a clip in it, because I mean, if you're going to choose between me or my cute kids, obviously you're going to put the cute kids in. But here I was subconscious the whole time, and the camera wasn't even on me. And that is a good microcosm, that's a good little snapshot of what insecurity does to us. Insecurity makes us feel like, is everybody watching me? Is everybody judging me? Is everybody looking at the way that I'm acting right now? Some of you have had that experience where you've gone through a good portion of your workday and then you realize that you've got breakfast still in your teeth or, or something along those lines and you're like, man, did I look like this the whole time? How many people have noticed? Did they all notice and didn't say anything to me? What, what's going on? We feel like everybody is watching us. That's what insecurity feels like. But the truth is, the truth is that reality is more like that 0.3 seconds that you could just barely see us in the background of that commercial and we weren't even the focal point. The truth is that most of the time nobody's really paying attention, or at least not to the degree that we think that they are. And they didn't notice. Insecurity is a self-consciousness or a feeling like everyone is watching us when the truth is that a lot of times nobody notices. Nobody's watching that closely. In the book, Didn't See It Coming, Carrie Newhoff shares five signs that you struggle with insecurity. And it may be that you find one of these resonates with you or all five, just kind of depending on your personality. 
But the first one, the first sign that you're insecure is that you regularly compare yourself to others. And we live in a world right now that is so geared to comparison. Because constantly, companies want to advertise to you that this is where you could be if you bought their product. If you took their diet pill, if you drove their fancy fancy luxury car. And so they're constantly trying to force you for 30 seconds to compare yourself to a person who has their product or wears their clothes or lives in a house with this type of furnishings. And so there's this constant drive in our culture to make us compare ourselves. And so we find ourselves regularly asking, man, if I only had that latest toy, I could be like that. Comparing ourselves to people who have the bigger house or the more fit body or the newer car. And most of us aren't arrogant, but we struggle with what one counselor has dubbed comparagance. And comparagance is an arrogance that's born out of constant comparing. Because when we constantly compare ourselves to others, we get tired of losing that comparison battle. So we start looking for people that we know that we're better than. We start looking for people like, at least I'm in more shape than that guy right? At least my car is newer than that hoopty, right? At least my house is bigger than that one. And we move into this place where we're constantly comparing ourselves to, in comparisons that we know we can win. And it breeds this comparison in us. So the first sign is you regularly compare yourself to others. The, the second sign is that your self-worth rests on your latest results. Now for you, maybe that's your latest paycheck, or your latest bonus that you got from work. Or maybe it's the latest time that you posted on your mile. Or it's the amount of weight that you most recently lifted. Or it's the amount of production that you're able to do. Or it's the number of likes that you got on your latest selfie. And when your self-worth is tied to the latest metric or results, that's a sign that you're not finding security in something that's stable because those results are going to fluctuate. And I'll be honest that for me... This is something that I struggle with because I find myself constantly at work in things that you cannot see the results. I mean, I don't mean like I can see them, but you can't. I can't even see the results. Like right now, I'm trying to communicate God's word in a clear and compelling way, which I feel like is my life's purpose, but I can't see whether or not this is hitting home for you. I can't see whether or not it's striking a nerve for you. I can't see if you're taking this and applying it or if you're thinking about what you need to get at the grocery store this afternoon. And a lot of the work that I plunge myself into is something that I I can't see the results of. And so when there is a metric for what I do, I I obsess about that one metric because it gives me some type of clarity. I have a a dear friend who was in ministry for many years, and he, he stepped out of ministry and went to work at a sales job. And he said the thing that he liked most about it was the fact that at the end of the week, he always knew if he had done a good job. And that was something he never knew when he was in ministry. And the truth is, if you find yourself at a place where you're doing a thing where you don't really know, is this contributing value? Is this making a difference? If you find yourself and you're a stay-at-home mom and you're investing in your kids every week and they're just as rotten this week as they were last week, you're like, is this making any difference? And so you're constantly looking for some results that will help you see that you're doing a good job. That's a sign that you're insecure. The third sign is that you struggle to celebrate the successes of others. You see, when you're insecure and you're constantly comparing yourself to others, when someone else has a reason to celebrate, it's difficult for you because in your mind, their win is your loss. 
because now their car is newer than yours. Now their new house is bigger than yours, right? Now their new weight is less than yours. And so you struggle to celebrate because in your mind, their win is your loss. You can't be happy when your friend is in a great relationship because you spent Valentine's Day alone. You can't be happy for your friends that are having a baby because that hasn't happened for you yet. You can't be happy for your coworker that gets a promotion because you feel like you should have already gotten one. And when you're insecure, you struggle to be happy for anyone else that something good happens to. And that's when you see someone post a picture of their vacation, you're like, must be nice. Wish I could do that. And anything that they get to celebrate, you're like, man, it's not fair. It's difficult for you to celebrate the success of others. The fourth is that you edge gifted people out of your life. And if, and if you are constantly comparing yourself to others, and you want to compare yourself to people that you're better than, then you will move people that are better than you or smarter than you out of your life. Here's the problem with that. It feels good when you're the smartest person in the room, but what's dangerous about that is that you're the smartest person in the room. Amen. And the best ideas are all going to have to be your ideas. And when you edge people who maybe can give you some advice and show you the way and, and mentor you, you're doing yourself a disservice. And then number five is that you must have a say in everything. Uh, at our conference that I mentioned earlier that was in Little Rock, not Kansas City, um, they do seminars and they'll have people that are specific an expert or experienced or have some background in a particular skill or a particular subject, whether it be ministry-related, parenting, theology. And they'll have that person give a seminar, and typically at the end of the seminar, they'll say, does anyone have any questions? And every time, there'll be someone who does this. They don't really have a question, more of a comment, really. Now here, this person has prepared this 40-minute seminar. They have been chosen to do this seminar because they have a background in it. And they're giving you the floor so you can ask a question. And it's like, hey, actually, I had a thought while you were talking that I want to be sure to mention. And that's born out of insecurity. Like, somebody else is getting all of the attention right now, and so I'd like to put my two cents in. It's really easy for me to say that right now because I'm taking up all of the attention. But when you have to have a say, you have to control everything, it's a sign that you can't let go, you can't take your hands off it because you feel some security or you feel some worth in that attention. By the way, a really good application of this is that you don't have to argue with everyone. You don't have to be right. Even if it's about something important. Even if that person said something online that's just totally idiotic. You don't have to be right. You can let it go. So these five signs, maybe they've helped you see some insecurity. Here's what I want you to get a hold of, okay? Insecurity is actually linked to pride. Insecurity is actually linked to pride. You say, what do you mean? If I'm insecure, I'm not arrogant. Well, see, many times when people think of pride, they think of arrogance or narcissism. But the truth is, is that insecurity is directly linked to pride. 
Insecurity is like the reverse side or the reverse form of pride because we think everybody should be focused on me, and if they are, what do they think of me? David Anderson said, pride and insecurity occupy two sides of the same coin. And when we find ourselves constantly asking, what does everyone think of me? The truth is that they don't really think of us that often. We're not the star of this show. It's not about us. And in our own minds, we are the main character in this movie of life. But the truth is, is that everybody thinks that. Pride and insecurity are linked. And insecurity is actually the offspring, the love child of pride and fear. And when we have this sense of pride within our hearts, and then we're afraid of what people think, that's where insecurity is birthed. And some of you, I'm losing you because you're like, well, that's not my problem. I'm not a proud person. I'm not an arrogant person. I'm not a narcissist. In the book, Carrie Newhoff says there's a, a, a two-step process to figuring out, a two-step test to figure out if you're a narcissist. Step one is take a moment and think about yourself. Step two is that if you're able to make it to steps two, you're not a narcissist. Because in step one, you just keep thinking about yourself all the time. Some of you are like, what? That's not my problem. I'm not a narcissist. I don't think about myself all of the time. The truth is, few people struggle with narcissism, but everyone struggles with pride. Everyone struggles with pride. Hear me. Everybody in this room struggles with pride. And if you are too proud to admit that you struggle with pride, then you really struggle with pride. (laughs) Everyone in the room struggles with pride. We all do. And because of that, Scripture talks about it again and again and again. It talks about it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It talks about it in the poetic literature. It gives us examples of characters who fail because of their pride. Most of the principles that we know, most of the quotes that we know about pride are lifted straight out of Scripture. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride cometh before a fall. James 4, 6 tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 27, 2 says, let, not an, let another man praise thee and not with thy own lips or not with thy own mouth. Galatians 6, 3 says, a man think of himself to be something when he is nothing and deceiveth himself. Now, Scripture talks about this all the time because it is a prevalent problem. It's something that all of us struggle with. And Scripture also talks about it because it is the root of so many other problems and so many other sins. Pride is the root of envy. Pride is saying that that thing that they have, I deserve to have it. I'm just as good as them, or as I'm better than them, I should have it. Pride is the root of greed. I should have more than other people have. Pride is the root of vanity. I'm better looking than everyone else. I'm more important than everyone else. I'm more powerful than everyone else. And pride is the root of so many other sins, and these things lead us into heartache and trouble and consequences. And two of the consequences of pride is division and selfishness. And for this reason, in November of 2019, we looked at the issue of pride in Philippians chapter 2, where we're going to be. But we were in the series of messages entitled Joyride because we were trying to see that when we have humility, it brings joy and a willingness to serve others. And that's been good because it helped us make this transition to two services. Helped us make this transition to two services because so many of our people took the step of serving in one and worshiping in the other. 
We're on our fifth week of this series, and it's also the fifth week of doing worship at 9, 30, and 11. And it would not be possible without the 40 people, 40 adults and kids that are here for both services because they're serving during one and worshiping during the other. They're not doing that because it's convenient for them. They're doing it because they're being selfless and they're giving of their time, and I greatly appreciate it. When we looked at this passage a while ago, we were looking at it for those reasons. But today I want to focus on Philippians chapter 2 so that we can see the antidote to pride. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 is where we'll pick up reading. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem better others better than themselves. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. The word vainglory, it's a, actually a compound word in the original language, just like it's the combination of vain and glory in the old King James text. It's the combination of the word vanity and glory in the old Greek. And it's saying this is glory that's empty or meaninglessness. You ever heard somebody like boast all the time and you start to figure out that the reason they boast all the time is because there's nothing there, right? They're trying to cover up the fact that there's this emptiness, there's this void. That's vainglory. And he's saying, don't let your life be characterized by vainglory of doing things to cover up the emptiness or cover up the void in your life. Are you familiar with empty calories? We're probably all familiar with them. We've probably all eaten them, but do you know what that means? Empty calories are basically just sugars and fats. So it tastes good, and it provides sugars, energies, but other than that, there is no nutritional value to it. All right? So a donut, I hate to tell you this, but a donut is pretty much just empty calories. Like, there's no reason your body needs that unless it just is desperate for sugar, right? Desperate for some glucose to fuel your body. Your body is not like, yeah, donut, we can build muscle with that, right? Your body's not like, oh, we're sick, we need a donut because it'll help us fight off disease. There's no nutritional value to a donut, it's empty calories. And the same idea here is when we live in pride and vanity, we are living with emptiness. And we're putting that emptiness on display. We're trying to cover our emptiness with what looks good. And so just like a donut looks good, it's just concealing the fact that this is empty. It's empty. And it feels so good and it tastes so good and it feels so good and tastes so good to show off a little bit. To have everybody think that we did a great job. For everybody to brag on us. But it's empty inside. It says, don't let anything be done through strife or vainglory. There's a lot that's done that makes us feel good. And we'll only do it as long as it makes us feel good. But there's no meaning in it. There's no significance in it. And we can even have this approach to good things. There are times that we do something kind or nice just because of how it will look to other people. That's empty. It's vain. Jesus even says that when we do it for that purpose, that we have our reward and that there is no reward in heaven for that. Now, if we don't do it for show... If we do it out of a genuine desire to be generous or to be kind or to help others, heaven records that and there is a reward that is waiting for us. But if we do it for the purpose of being seen, if we do it for the purpose of everybody looking at us, that is empty and it will not be held on to. Heaven does not record that. Jesus said of the Pharisees who love to make a big show of all of their religiosity, 
They would bring their offering to the, to the temple to, to give in as little change as possible, small coins, so they could make a big noise, right? Can you imagine if we passed the offering plate at the end of service and someone had $100 of pennies? I'm like, yeah, look, listen to that. Everybody would hear it, right? And we'd, we'd roll the coins and we'd take it to the bank, but you'd have your reward for that. He says, don't, don't allow yourself to be motivated by vainglory. Don't allow yourself to be motivated by what will get seen. That's insecurity. That's a desperation for people to notice you. So what's the antidote here? Well, Paul gives us the antidote in the rest of verse 3 and then into verse 4. And lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. That's humility. Have lowliness of mind, be humble, esteem others better than yourself. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So let's go back to that moment where you do something kind for someone and you want everybody else to see, right? You're not doing it for that person, you're doing it for yourself. You're not looking on the needs of another, you're looking on the needs of yourself. We often use the term needy, and that term might refer to someone who has physical needs. They need clothing, shelter, food. But we also use it for people who are needy emotionally because they are constantly desperate for attention. There's that insecurity that they're looking to feed that need in their heart. So he's saying, look on the things of others. Look at the needs of others. Don't look to get what you need out of this. Look to give them what it is that they need. So the antidote to insecurity is humility. The antidote to feeling like you don't measure up is to think of yourself less. Only humility can get you out of what pride got you into, and pride is what drives us to act like that. Only humility will get us out of that. Now, I'm afraid that some of you in your mind, you're going down the wrong path because you think you know what humility is, but you don't. You're wrong. You think that humility is telling yourself that you're worthless. You think that humility is telling yourself that you're awful or beating yourself up or degrading yourself. That is not humility. And Paul, right after telling us that we should, we should, the antidote to our pride is humility, he then immediately gives us the very best example of humility. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what does Paul do? He says, listen, the answer to pride, the answer to insecurity is humility. And let me show you the very best example of humility. It's Jesus Christ. Who? thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was not humble because he thought of himself as worthless. Jesus was humble because he knew who he was and was willing to put others first. This passage says that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Some translations say that he did not think of divinity or equality with God as something to be clinged to or grasped to. When we're insecure and we finally get some status, we cling to that, man. Like, oh man, this is the thing that is finally going to show everybody that I am, what I've been pretending to be. This is it. 
Jesus didn't cling to his place in heaven because he wasn't afraid of losing it. He was secure in who he was. Truth is that some of you, you struggle with imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome is this constant feeling like, I don't, I don't really belong here. I probably shouldn't have this job. I somehow fooled them. And you're terrified of being exposed as a fraud. I don't, I don't think I should really have this much attention. I, I somehow fooled everyone. And so you have that, that's that insecurity working itself out in an imposter syndrome. Jesus knew who he was. He is the Son of God, God's Son. He had no doubts about who he was, but yet he was able to be completely humble. And you can know who you are. You can have a full identity in Christ As God's child, God's son, God's daughter. And what does that make you? That makes you a prince. That makes you a princess. That makes you a queen. That makes you a a king. That's an identity. And you can have that identity and still remain humble. Actually, it's within that identity that you can best find humility. You see, when you know your place in the world, you're comfortable going wherever the need arises. Because you're not worried about your status or your placement. You're not trying to get your security from that. Conan O'Brien, he's a popular late night TV show host. And he recently went off the air and he had had a one hour show every night, as is the custom for late night shows. And when he went off the air, it was because they were going to completely reorganize his show and he would be coming back with a 30 minute show. The format is changing. The way people watch television is changing. And so they were changing it up. And the New York Times interviewed him and they asked Conan O'Brien, they said, does it bother you that your show is being shortened to 30 minutes? Doesn't it make you afraid that it's just going to get shorter and shorter and shorter down to nothing? And I want you you to hear what Conan O'Brien said in response to the New York Times. He said, I think you have more of a problem with that than I do. He says, you know what? The truth is, in this culture, two years after I'm off the air, people are going to be saying, who's Conan O'Brien? He said, I know this sounds grim, but eventually all of our graves go unattended. The reporter actually said, that is really grim. Conan O'Brien said, no, let me tell you what I mean. He said, I recently visited the grave of former President Calvin Coolidge. He said, it's the grave of a former president. It has the presidential seal on the tombstone. He says there was nobody around. There's nobody who's been really taking that great a care of it. He was a kind of popular president in his day. But his grave has become forgotten. Conan O'Brien said, I know that that sounds grim, and you might think that that sounds almost depressed. He says, but when we realize our place in the world, We can be comfortable with whatever it is that we get to do. He said he had a conversation with the famous comedian Albert Brooks early in his career. And he was this young new comic and he was nervous. And he said, Mr. Brooks, he said, I'm just on late night TV. What you make, you make films and those are remembered forever. And Albert Brooks said, what are you talking about, kid? None of this matters. He said, you might think that that would make me depressed, but I was walking on air after that. You see, here's someone who has been at the height of fame and riches, and he recognizes that, that if he tries to find his identity or security in that, that it's fleeting, that it's going to go away. And whatever it is that we might be trying to find our identity or our security in, 
it will go away for all of us. Even if you're the President of the United States, when you know your place in the world, you'll easily go wherever the need arises. You'll easily go and serve others, not because it's something that you need, but because it's something that they need. I love this quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And somebody has attributed to C.S. Lewis, he never really said that, but that's kind of the, the summation of his thoughts in his book, Mere Christianity. But when we, it's not that we think less of ourselves or we demean ourselves or we degrade ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. We move us out of the center of our lives and we put Christ there instead. And pride, it gets us into all kinds of trouble. But humility will get us out of what pride got us into. That's actually Paul's point here. He says that Christ made himself of no reputation and became a servant. A servant even unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did Jesus do that? Because of what our pride got us into. You know, if you go back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempts Eve, he tempts her with the pride of life. He says, if you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll be powerful. You'll raise in status. When Satan would tempt Jesus later on in the wilderness, he would tempt him to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple because if he did, everyone would know, if you can fall from that height and still be alive, you must be God. You must be divine. It would be a way for Jesus to show everyone who he truly was. He was appealing to his pride. And our pride has gotten us into this mess of sin and brokenness in the world. And Jesus humbled himself on the cross so that we could be freed from the mess our pride has made. And when we are willing to humble ourselves, it'll get us out of the mess that our pride has made. If we're willing to humble ourselves and confess that we need Christ, that we can't figure this out on our own, that we, we can't straighten this out on their own, that we can't make our heart right, that we can spend our life chasing after the wind, trying to figure out something that will finally give us that fulfillment and that meaning and significance and make us finally feel like we measure up and it'll never happen. But if we submit to Christ and admit that we need Him, humble ourselves to Him, He'll clean up the mess that our pride has made. You know what happens when we humble ourselves? That the moment comes when someone does want to raise our status. It's a pleasant surprise. We don't feel like it was something that we were entitled to. Jesus said it this way. He said, when you go to a wedding, you go to a feast, don't take the best seat. Take the worst seat. He said, because if you take the best seat and they have to say, sir, would you please move? This is where the mother of the bride is going to sit. That's embarrassing. But if you take the worst seat and the host comes to you and says, oh, listen, I've got a much better seat that I'd like for you to sit in right here. Then it's an honor. And it's a pleasant surprise. Take the best seat and it has to be removed from you. You spend the whole night upset like, I felt entitled to that. I didn't get it. But when we're humble and we take the low place, every good thing is a gift. It's a gift that we can enjoy.
We live our lives grateful. And we also, this is just a great byproduct of that humility, we get to laugh at ourselves. You see, what happens is if we refuse to humble ourselves, eventually we're humbled. And there's a term for involuntary humbling. It's humiliation. Humiliation is when we are involuntarily humbled. And we've all had that experience, right? We walk into a room, we feel like, hey, I'm looking pretty good. And then we realize, oh, I still have spinach in my teeth from last night. (laughs) Our denomination has a magazine. And um, several years ago, they asked if they could write just a really short little article about me, about our church in it. And they said, would you send us a photo that we can include? So, man, I looked for, like, the best-looking photo of me, you know, like, got my good side, my hair was looking right, you know. Well, the reporter, the writer that I gave that to, when he sent it on to the editor, he didn't include my good photo. And it was press time. And so the editor, he needs a photo bad. So he goes to my Facebook And I had been skiing like a month before, and I had been skiing on this, this day that was just snow and crazy, and my beard was all snow. And that's the photo they used for me <laughs> in the magazine. My mom got that magazine, and she was mad, man. She was mad. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was great. And when, when we are humbled... We don't feel entitled to something. We recognize our real place. We don't have to be humiliated. We can just laugh along with everybody else. And every gift is a good gift. Would you bow your heads with me?